Would you join me in praying as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, I thank you uh, for the truth of that song. Death is dead and gone with the winter. Lord, because of what you've done, you, you, you offer life where before we only had death. Lord, would you tend the soil of our souls this morning? Would you come and do your work among us? Bring your word to life in our midst, God, not because of anything magical that I say, but because the living God is in our presence and things are different where the king is. So we invite you. It's yours anyway, not that you needed our invitation, but God, we invite you. Make yourself known this morning. May we be different because you have been present, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been continuing our walk through the book of Mark. Uh, Last week, we reached kind of a a pivotal point in the book of Mark, right? In Mark chapter 8, in the halfway point of the book, everything has been driving towards this one question that Jesus asks. Mark wrote this story to, to highlight this one question that Jesus asks. And it's when he looks to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? For eight chapters, Jesus has been going around casting out demons, healing the sick, working miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God being at hand, inviting people to come and follow him. And finally, he gets to a point where first he asks them the question, who do other people say that I am? And they say things like John the Baptist, a really high-respected man at the time, Elijah or one of the prophets, which to them was one of the, the greatest callings someone could have. Jesus, they say you're someone famous and important. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Messiah uh, is interchangeable with Christ. Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You guys know that, right? It really isn't Jesus H. Christ. He would have been known as Jesus of Nazarene, and so Christ was a title given to him. Messiah, it was the the Hebrew version of the Greek word Christ. The Messiah, the anointed one of God. And Jesus goes, yes, Peter, you're finally getting it. Well done. And then Jesus says, because you guys got that right, you're you're getting it. You know that I'm the Messiah. He says, let me tell you what comes next. And so he starts to tell his disciples. He kind of pulls them off to the side and he goes, look, we're heading to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then in three days, I'll raise to life. And Peter pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. Imagine pulling Jesus aside and going, how dare you? Don't you ever do that again. Wagging your finger in Jesus' face. And Jesus has a a, a harsh rebuke of Peter. He says, behind me, Satan, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. You guys, you got the right answer, like on the title piece. You got it. But when it came to understanding who the Messiah was, they were worlds apart. And we'll find that his disciples weren't the only ones Uh, in this boat. Moving on into the next story, it's it's actually just a continuation of the same story, but in the next verse, in Mark 8, 34, and we're going to be jumping all over the place today, so if you're trying to follow along in your Bible, good luck. We'll have all the verses up on the screen in case you just quit later. That's okay. So Mark 8, 34, 
his disciples get it wrong. And so Jesus, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, we're we're working into an if-then statement. If you want to follow me, then here's what it looks like, is what Jesus is about to launch into. But when they would have heard this first part, if anyone wants to follow me, there would have been a whole host of information that just backloaded into their mind. They would have understood what it was to follow a teacher, to follow a rabbi at the time. So let me ask you guys this question. One of the things that we like to do is actually talk as a whole congregation, not just sit and listen to me. Let's learn from each other. What did it mean to them back then to follow Jesus? What would it have looked like? What, what did it mean if you want to be my follower? What would they have thought of? Yeah, it was, it was incredibly literal back then. I'm going left, follow me. And it, legitimately, there was these crowds that wherever Jesus walked, they walked in his footsteps and they followed him. It was very, very literal. What else would it have meant? Not a trick question. It's okay. Okay. Part of following him would have meant leaving your old life. Like, I can't keep my job here and follow him there. I can't keep my old life here and follow him there. It would have meant leaving your old life behind to become his follower. What else? Oh, Jesus took them to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when we hear like a follower of Jesus, when we hear the word disciple, we immediately think of the Bible and the disciples and following Jesus. But for them, it was just a very common thing. Everyone who was a professional at something had disciples, apprentices, people that they were following along with them. Watch what I do. Now you do it, and I'm going to stand back, and I'll tell you what you did wrong. We'll, we'll work at this together. The, the other Pharisees would have had disciples following them. John the Baptist had disciples. To become a carpenter, you would have apprenticed yourself to someone and you would have followed them. We still do it in a lot of things today. If you're going to be a plumber, you apprentice to someone. If you're going to be a doctor, I think they call it a fellowship if I'm equating them correctly, you apprentice yourself to other doctors. It's not just go to school, read a book, and now you're a doctor, you know what to do. There's a far cry from just knowing information and knowing how to actually apply it. And that was part of their culture. So following Jesus would have been not only walk where I walk, but do what I do. The things you see me doing, put those into practice. The things that I teach, you're going to teach. The things that I say, you're going to say. In these contexts, the way that I pray, that's how I want you to pray. The way that I relate to people, that's how you relate to people. So let's put a little bit of a spin on it. What does it look like to follow Jesus today? 
First of all, has anyone seen him walking down the street? Because if so, we need to actually get on our horse and go find him. It's not the same thing, right? It's not like he's here walking among us and we just follow along like a herd of ducklings. So what does it mean today to follow Jesus? Let's stick with what it's supposed to look like, because I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Yeah. What is it supposed to look like to follow Jesus? It's a great point. It looks very different in terms of there's not a physical man here, but in practice, building relationship with him, talking with him, learning from him. Same, some of those things really do translate over, but it's going to practically look very different because now instead of having that conversation just directly with him and hearing an audible voice, we read his word. We pray and we listen for his Holy Spirit. But in, the idea is the same. Somebody else was starting to say something. Yeah. Yeah, last week we ended the message with my definition of following Jesus. Doing what he did in the way that he did it. Like making your life imitate Jesus' life. Think about this. What did Jesus do? He went where the lost were. He engaged in relationship with people that didn't even look anything like him, with people that he didn't have much in common with, but he engaged in relationship. He loved them. He boldly invited them into the kingdom relationship. And now we, as his followers today, are to do what he did in the way that he did it, be about what he was about in the way that he went about it. Loving, compassionate, gracious, self-sacrificial, this is what it is to follow Jesus. And notice the one thing we haven't heard is know a lot of information. No one just said, you know, we'll memorize these couple books of the Bible. Memorize these verses. Just get the knowledge and boom, you're following Jesus. Is there anything wrong with, with knowing about Jesus, with knowing the Bible? With No, it's imperative. We, we have to. But for many, like what Gina had said, what the world thinks of and what, what, what some think of as following Jesus is a purely intellectual endeavor. Just learn some theology. Use some of these words. Quote some of these scriptures. And who cares what your life looks like? But what we actually find in the scripture is that to follow Jesus is to live the same kind of life that he lived. To have the same heart for people that he had. That's what it is to follow Jesus today. Christina, you were putting your hand up? Which is good.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus calls us to walk a very fine line. He does following Jesus. Again, means living and loving like he did. And how did he do it? Uh, John 1.12 tells us uh, that when Jesus came, the light of the world came into the world. And it says he was here full of grace and truth. He, he didn't put one down and pick up the other. Now I'm just gracious. Who cares about truth? Now I'm just truthful, beating people over the head. Who cares about grace? At the same time, he loved people. He was gracious, compassionate, but he still held a very high standard, which actually we're about to see here. He was full of both grace and truth. You see, so we find ourselves here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus knows that word about him is spreading. He's just asked his disciples, what are people saying about me? And he got back some pretty big time answers. What do you guys say about me? You're the Messiah. Word about him is spreading. His fame is growing, but Jesus also knows that with it, so is misunderstanding. Every time somebody hears Messiah, this prophet Jesus, this rabbi Jesus, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they attach to it. And what we find is it wasn't what Jesus meant by it. Most of the people there, most of the people following him, there was huge crowds, sometimes thousands of people, as we've seen with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. He typically had at least a couple hundred following him around. And he knew that most of them had a wrong assumption of not only what it meant to follow him, but many of them had an assumption of what they would gain from following him. And we'll see this as we continue through Mark. Some thought that they would gain fame and notoriety. Think of the Pharisees at the time, like everybody knew who they were. When they walked into town, there was kind of a, ooh, they got a wide berth in the streets because they were famous people. They had authority. When they spoke, people listened. And a, a lot of Jesus' followers were thinking the same thing. If I attach myself to him, I'm going to be somebody important then. I'm going to have authority. When I speak, people will listen because I've been with Jesus. People will respect me. I will have power. Some may have even thought wealth. The wealthiest people in Israel back in that time were the religious leaders. They had found ways to work the system and make themselves incredibly rich. And there were probably people in the crowd going, man, if I stick with Jesus, I'm going to be wealthy, powerful, just like those men. So when Jesus calls them close and he, said, he summons the crowd along with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, they had all these thoughts going along. It's going to be awesome. We're going to set Rome straight. We're going to kick them out. He, man, he has beat up on the Pharisees, and that's been fun to watch. If anyone's going to be my follower, their hopes were getting up. And then he says this, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to lose or save his life will lose it, excuse me. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This would have dashed aspirations of fame, of wealth, of power. In today's terms, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, be prepared to suffer. Unless you're willing to give up everything, don't follow me. Jesus is not threatening them. Please understand that. Jesus is not like hammering them and going, man, I'm going to make things hard on you. 
Jesus is just trying to set them straight. Here's what following me actually costs. He's trying to dispel illusions. I want you to hear it from my own lips, Jesus would say. Here's what following me looks like. Deny yourself, take up your cross, then follow me. Lose your life so that you can find life. Jesus was trying to show them the way to experience true life. And it sounds hard because especially in our culture today, you hear deny yourself, take up your cross, and we don't think life. We think, oh, who would want to do that? That sounds like it would hurt. And most of what we do today is to avoid anything that hurts. But Jesus is trying to be clear from the very beginning, if you're going to follow me, be prepared to suffer. There is life on the other side, and we'll get to that. He's actually inviting them in to a kingdom lifestyle. But he wants them to know straight up, like, I don't want you, I'm, he's not trying to bait and switch. Everything's going to be great. And then, wait, he died on the what? Are you kidding me? He is incredibly open and honest with them. This will be the hardest thing you will ever do, and it will be the most worthwhile thing you will ever do. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Here's the problem with this. That saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, has become too familiar. Most of us have heard it too many times, and we don't even bat an eye at it. It just goes past us. We can quote it, but we don't really understand it. We don't really internalize it because it's just become too familiar. Life in the kingdom is a life of submission, of self-denial, and of death to self. It, man, it sounds great. Who wants to get on board, right? Thanks for the encouraging message, Pastor. It's a hard life. Deny yourself. When Jesus says, deny yourself, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in, in Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the way that Paul viewed deny yourself. Everything in me, all my passions and my desires that are contrary to God, I have crucified them. They're dead to me. And that's, Paul wasn't saying he's perfect at it. He would go on later to go, look, not that I've arrived yet. I'm still struggling through it. But that was the stance he took. His desire was that anything in him that opposed Christ was dead, was put on the cross. He was denying himself. It doesn't say there, get ready because other people are going to come along and persecute you, though that, that will happen and Jesus does speak to that. But this is self-denial. This isn't about other people coming against you for, for taking a stand for your faith. This is you saying to follow Jesus means to say no to me and yes to him. Deny myself. Are we willing to do this, church? Because Jesus didn't say, if you want to follow me, you could if you wanted to deny yourself. This is what it means to follow me. Deny yourself. Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Take up your cross. Again, it's so familiar to us. In today's vernacular, it would literally be take up the lethal injection needle. Take up the electric chair. The cross was a symbol of corporate punishment and death. And Jesus was going, hey, you want to follow me? You know all those people we've seen hanging on the side of the road dying horrible deaths? 
take up that attitude, and now you can follow me. And we go, you start to see why Peter pulled him aside and said, Jesus, you can't keep saying this stuff. No one's going to follow you, man. Who wants that, Jesus? The Apostle Paul would say it again like this in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take up the cross means this to Paul. I have been crucified. The old me is dead, nailed to a cross. Now my, my life's goal is to have Christ live through me. That when people look at me, they don't see me, they see Jesus living through me. They see his love and compassion, his grace, his generosity, his high standard for truth. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus goes on to say, what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? Again, Paul talking uh, to his disciple, Timothy, in 1 Timothy. And he says this, command those who are rich in this present world, those who have everything that life has promised, those that have arrived in the world's eyes, command those who are rich in this present world not to become arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. What Jesus and Paul are saying is the same exact thing. Don't get caught up thinking that living it up here is the life that you've been created for. Thinking that it will give you any kind of purpose or fulfillment or satisfaction. It's a mirage. It doesn't live up to its promises. Who of you, by gaining the entire world, gains something better than your own life? Some translations say your own soul. What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? But by giving up things of this world, by living open-handed, with all the things that we've been given, being willing to share, generous. We will experience life that is truly life. We will experience purpose and calling and deeper relationship and faith and dependence on him than we can imagine on the other side. Life that is truly life. Life that truly sustains but again, we have to sacrifice, live open-handed. If you have a need and I can meet the need, I'm willing. And he doesn't say that having stuff is bad. He, he talks about God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God has blessed us with things. God has given us things to enjoy. The problem is we take those gifts of his, we wrap those fists tight, and we say, these are mine now. I decide what to do with them. I decide how they're going to be used. And that stuff begins to drain life out. But Jesus is saying when we live open-handed, generous, willing to share, ready to meet needs, we will experience life that is truly life when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, 
and when we live life the way that he lived life, open-handed with everything he had, we will experience life that is truly life. And then he says something that stops me in my tracks every single time I read it. Mark 8:38. back to our story in Mark. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So let me ask you this question. What does it look like to be ashamed of Jesus and his word? Because that's a, that's a scary warning that he's given there. If we are ashamed of him in this life, he will be ashamed of us on the day that he returns. Again, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, you need to read it again. What does it mean? What does it look like to be ashamed of Jesus and his word? in those times when, when reading the word and it becomes very apparent that who you think Jesus should be and who he says he is are different, who wins in that moment? Do I try to rationalize and make Jesus like me or do I go, Jesus, I refuse to be ashamed of you. Who you say you are, that's what we're going with. That's good. How else? What, what does it look like to be ashamed of Jesus and his word? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I know in my own life the temptation. When I'm with you guys, something happens and I go, man, God is so good. Man, we, we prayed for this and look at how God came through and we're going to praise him. Now go out to Walmart and have somebody ask you how your week has gone and tell them the same thing. It's gut check time now. There's kind of that, oh, I don't know how they feel about this though. I don't know if they're going to like this. I don't know if they agree with me. They might go, oh, you're one of those. And all of a sudden I start asking questions like, Am I ashamed of Jesus? Am I somebody different here with you where it's safe, where we kind of all have this agreed upon thing, Jesus is cool, we can talk about Jesus. But when we leave this place, do I start talking differently? Do I just tell people, yeah, really glad everything worked out, <laughs> not giving glory to God for answering prayers? And Am I ashamed of Jesus? This is a legit question I ask myself regularly. And far too often the answer is a little bit, yeah. And I, I bring it to him and I go, Jesus, I am, I'm sorry. I, I do not want to live ashamed of you. My pride, my arrogance, my concern about what people will think of me all come into play. And you know where it takes me back to? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Sure. 
Yeah, and many of us approach that way, whether it's with sharing Jesus with someone, just talking about him. Jesus needs a little help. He needs a little, little PR bump. And so we're going to leave out some of the things in here that would make people uncomfortable, and we're just going to paint a picture of a hippie Jesus who was kind to everyone and everything was fine and it was roses all the time. But here's the thing that the scriptures teach us. The gospel is offensive. In and of itself, it doesn't need help. The gospel is offensive. To tell someone... Every single one of us is sinful to the core. We have broken relationship with God and we are in need of a savior. We're too weak to save ourselves. God needed to do something on our behalf. That is an offensive message. But many of us, especially it's a very PC culture today, we don't want to offend. And so we might leave parts out and we might just go, no, relationship with Jesus is great, but we don't really want to talk about sin. We don't really want to talk about the consequences of sin, the death that sin creates in us now and for eternity. And so we water it down. We just kind of bump up some of the more acceptable parts. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus can fix your life. The gospel is offensive. Are we willing to offend people potentially? by telling them about the hope that they need. I, I can only answer for me, and that's a struggle for me at times. And when it comes back to it, am I ashamed of the gospel? Jesus, help me to deny myself to take up my cross. I'm, I'm back again. I slipped into it again, Jesus. Help me deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Wherever you lead, that's where I want to follow. Jesus is inviting them to follow him, but he's warning them of the cost of fellowship. Come follow me, but be warned, you will suffer for doing so. It will not be popular. It will not be prestigious. Many will oppose you, some even with violence. Are you willing to follow me now? He uses this parable over in the book of Luke. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Again, Jesus was not a bait-and-switch artist. He said, I want you to count the cost. It's going to be hard. It's going to cost you everything. That's what the cross does. It kills. It takes everything. Do you still want to follow me? Do you still think that what I offer is worth everything. Jesus puts it to you for all your chips. There's no hedging bets. There's no going halfway. You're in or you're out. You're following me or you're not. You're willing to give up everything or you're not. Count the cost before you say yes. Following Jesus is hard. It always has been and it always will be. But there are two truths that if we hold on to, they will help us in following him. They will encourage us in those dark times, in those times when it feels like death to follow Jesus. 
The first truth is this. Jesus always leads where he calls. There is nowhere Jesus is calling you that he hasn't already gone. There is nothing that Jesus is saying that it's going to cost you that he hasn't already paid. Jesus always leads where he calls. Again, back to Mark 8. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is the picture of self-denial. He literally took up a cross, which I pray none of us will ever have to do. He is not calling us someplace he's never been. He's not calling us someplace that he can't understand. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. When we come into these moments where it feels like death, where we're called to deny ourselves, give up that thing that we thought we wanted, man, this would, this would finally be the thing, and I'd be happy, and life would have purpose. And Jesus says, lay it down. We're called by the author of Hebrews to fix our eyes on Jesus who laid everything down. Talks about throwing off the, the weight of sin and the things that so easily ensnare us. Jesus modeled it all. He went before us. In those moments, fix your eyes on Jesus because he always leads where he calls. Luke 22, Jesus in the garden, the day before he literally takes a cross for us praying with his father, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if there is a plan B, I want to do that. I know what this is going to feel like. I know how much this is going to hurt. This is not only going to feel like death. This is literally going to kill me. Yet he said, but not my will, but yours be done. Where can God call us that Jesus hasn't already been? Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who has been able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus has been tested in every way we have. And he did it perfectly. Now he says, come, follow me. Follow where I lead. I've already been there. You can trust me. Everything coming at you, I've been tempted with the same things. I know the way through. Follow me. You can trust me. The Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And here it is. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is sending them out to be about what he was about in the way that he was about it. The Great Commission is basically Jesus going, hey, remember what I did for the last three and a half years? Now go and do likewise. And remember, I'm with you every step of the way. To the end of the age literally means to the end of time. I'm with you. You can trust me. 
Not only have I been there before, I'll be there with you. He will always lead where he calls. The second thing we have to hold on to is that Jesus always promises where he calls. Let me explain this one a little bit. When I use that word promises, it kind of has two meanings. The first is that Jesus promises help. Wherever he calls us, he promises to supply whatever we need. We're going to look at some passages with that. But there's also a promise of reward with it. Not only will we see in the scriptures are there promises of, hey, when you're in the middle of it, I'll be there with you. I'll supply your needs. But there's also a promise of reward on the other side. And sometimes we can struggle with the promise of reward because it kind of feels selfish a little bit. Wait, are we allowed to be in this for the reward? That doesn't sound like deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But God knows our hearts. He knows we need to know there is something waiting on the other side. In fact, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, what's called the Hall of Faith, story after story of faithful men and women of God who remained faithful in great times of hardship. But here's how that starts in, in verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God's not going, hey, just trust me. We don't know what's over on the other side, but I'm sure it'll be fine. He tells us what's waiting for us. Life that is truly life. Purpose. Even blessing in the life to come. Do we believe that God rewards those who seek him? Sometimes that's the question we need to ask if we're going to take that step. Do I really believe he's going to come through? Do I really believe that he rewards those that seek him, that follow after him? If so, I have no excuses. Here we go. If I'm scared to take that step, do I really believe that he answers his promises, that he's faithful, that he rewards those who seek him? We read the first part of this verse a minute ago, back in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Again, not only is Jesus saying, I'm with you, I've already been there and I'll walk with you into it, I will also provide the grace, the mercy that you need for every step along the way. Do we trust him? that he answers his promises. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I love this part. I don't give as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, and don't worry, I don't bulk. I don't bait and switch. What I say I will do, I don't give as the world gives. When you need peace, I will provide it. God rewards those who seek him. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul talking about just the difficulties of his journey. Uh, he had this one physical problem that, that just wouldn't go away no matter what he did. And here's what he has to say about it. He, he kept praying and asking God to take it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Listen to this. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and impressures because of Christ. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood what it was to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus, to have faith that God always answers what God promises. When I am weak, then I am strong. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so for Paul to even say, I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and pressures. Men had been shipwrecked, flogged, bitten by snakes, cast aside, thrown in prison, everything you can imagine. And he says, because of how Jesus shows up in those times, I actually take joy in them. It sounds insane. Because until you've been there and ex- like actually stepped out onto the water and experienced the miraculous provision of God, it will always sound insane. First, we have to step out of the boat. Then we see the miracle. First, we have to actually put faith in the promise and put some weight on it before we find out that it's true. Most of us are hesitant to do that, myself included, guys. It's scary. It's hard. John 10.10, a thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Where everything the world throws at you will ultimately lead to death. Jesus says, for those who follow me, you will experience life abundantly, overflowing, pouring out and spilling everywhere life. For those who will follow me. Back to Mark 8, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. But whoever gives up everything because of me and the gospel will experience life now and in eternity to come. Jesus always leads where he calls. Jesus always promises where he calls. Do we trust him? Or will we be ashamed? Are we willing to give up everything, to step out of the boat and trust that what he offers is enough? If not, he says, don't even start following. That's what it looks like. In his next letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this, and we'll end with this passage talking about what it's been like to follow Jesus and how difficult things have been. And he says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Again, short of Jesus, I don't know anyone that had it harder than the Apostle Paul. And this is at the end of his life. He's actually going to be beheaded within the next few months, he knows this is his last letter to his disciple and friend, Timothy. And he says, I suffer these things, and in fact, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Do we have that same trust? Will we practice that same faith to follow Jesus? Deny yourself take up a cross, and follow him? Do we trust him? Is he good? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have made it uh, probably clearer than most of us are comfortable with. There is not a whole lot of wiggle room in the case that you state. 
to follow you involves self-denial, involves suffering, involves giving up things that are important to us because what's important to you is more important to us. This is hard. Lord Jesus, for those that desire it, would you grant us faith that we would be able to believe that you reward those that earnestly seek you, that you will truly provide for every need we have along the way, that you truly are a good father worth following. God, as we begin to take those steps, may we, as the author of Hebrews says, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You have endured everything that could come our way, and you did it perfectly. May we keep our eyes fixed on you. May we grow deeper in relationship and in dependence on you. God, even to the point, it sounds crazy, but how Paul said, I even take pleasure in the weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because God supplies every need I have. He fulfills every promise he has made. You have put the question to us this morning, Jesus. I pray uh, that as we sing this next song, as we go from this place today, that you would haunt us with this question. That it wouldn't be something that we just heard and walk away and we'll see it next week, but truly, God, this would stick with us. These questions that we've discussed, am I ashamed? Am I willing to give up everything? Are there areas you're calling me to deny myself and I've said no, that we wouldn't be able to shake these, God? but truly you would walk with us into them. As we've already prayed, may we be different people because you've been present, because our lives look more like you. We've become imitators of Christ and everything that comes along with it. Teach us what it is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.